think there's still a bit of a misconception that some guys do low carb and things like that. But you know, if you're trying to win these races, you, you can't do it on a low carbohydrate diet. It's, uh, unless you you know you're doing something really prolonged and low intensity. But even then, you know that that's not kind of the world these guys operate in. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm your host, Steph Gaskell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? Uh, I'm all right, Steph, although we are in lockdown again. (laughs) Mm. The, The wonders of COVID living here in Melbourne and obviously coming into winter probably doesn't help a little bit. Um... But uh, I'm nice and vaccinated, which is nice. Um, but Good. yes, back in the, the treadmill of homeschooling kids during the day and then trying to get some work done at night time uh, with the occasional meeting during the day and then uh, finishing off assignments and then good exams for the students for the university. Um, it's that kind of time of year. But uh, it's also one of my favourite times of year because of international sporting events and what you get to watch late at night in terms of things like um, obviously the Giro d'Italia is just wrapped up and we'll sort of reference that a little bit today. I think uh, Tour de France is, is sort of on the horizon soon. Um, we've got some Olympic selection events coming up and then obviously the games themselves. So, uh, and then you have, you know, you add in your, your Wimbledons and all those sorts of things, uh, although maybe not all of those are going to go ahead this year. Um, mm. But it's always, a for me, it's a, it's a great time of year to um, follow sport in all its different forms, particularly things that are, probably more European-based or Northern Hemisphere-based at least. So, yeah. Yeah. Good times. Yeah. How about you? Good times. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm, yeah, obviously with, with COVID, the studies have stopped uh, again, um, which will, yeah, we've just got to wait and see what happens in terms of rescheduling them. Um, but it's actually... In one way, it's given me a bit of a breather in terms of being able to catch up on other work, um, so catching up on lectures and those types of things as well, uh, and um, and gives me a bit more flexibility as well, being selfish, uh, to be able to run at different times of the, the day and not having to get up when it's dark and cold necessarily, and um, that's been quite, quite lovely too. Um, yeah, I had my first jab. Uh, of the vaccine the other day had like a dead arm for three days oh wow Uh, yeah yeah um so not not necessarily looking forward to what the side effects for me might be in that second jab because i've heard you can get quite unwell with that so did you get did you get unwell when you had uh first one not at all it was just like a flu shot i suppose didn't really feel anything uh at all with it second one yeah I probably just felt like the day after, probably for about 24 hours, just felt this kind of overwhelming urge to sit down whenever I was standing up. Um, mm. But that literally lasted 24 hours and it was gone. Was, so, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it was fine. But, yeah, I know other people that have that have sort of felt a lot worse than I did yeah. from it. So, yeah, yeah. I got to count my blessings from that perspective. Um, mm. And the other thing I was going to say with um, with lockdown, I know you've been busy working on writing up papers as well, Steph. Mm. Yes. You can tell us a yeah. bit about that. Uh, so we had, um, we had one of the papers, uh, released, well, an article, I guess, in the Aspatar journal, 
Um, so that's like, I guess yep. that journal's um, quite readily used and read by um, sports med practitioners. Um, mm. So, and that kind of just help outline some of the recommended suggested assessment methods that you can do with an athlete that may attend your clinic and present with um, particular exercise associated gastrointestinal symptoms um, so it kind of works through the um, the what we say is like a gastrointestinal assessment pathway and intervention approach and uh, and and then that leads into then a paper that we have the abstract approved uh, so hopefully we'll have the um, manuscript approved very soon and then that goes into detail um, in relation to a case series that we did um, with that particular approach. So, yep. yeah, yep. Yeah, and that relates back been... to episode seven of the podcast, which we talked about, you know, why do I get gut issues during exercise? And we talked quite a bit about the assessment and the need to do that kind of thorough assessment to work out what's going on. Uh, and mm. then we talked in episode 7B with Aniko Lanos, who went through that process, flew over from Spain to, to Melbourne here to do that um, because there wasn't any testing available over there. Um, and basically that sort of testing process he went through is what's described in that paper, the Aspatar Journal paper, and that is open access, so it's free for anyone to, to access um, so we might put a link to that in our in our social media. I think we might have done it already, but we'll do it again mm. if anyone wants to have a have a look at that because it sort of, I guess, opens opens a lid and, and has a look at that kind of black box in terms of the assessment process that we do in the lab at Monash Uni. And as you said, the one coming up is then a case series of um, people who have been through that process. I guess what we found and and what was the outcome having done yep. that assessment and putting things into place. So it's a real uh, nice sort of follow-up to that in terms of, okay, well, you do your assessment now, what kind of thing. Mm, exactly. Yep. Yep. Mm. Yeah. No, good to – it will be lovely to get that one off the, the table and and um, out there. So looking yep. forward to that. Mm. Yeah, nice. And we've had a few social media um, – well, we've had uh, at least one social media um, comment, haven't we? Um... Yes, yeah, from Mary, who had a whole bunch of questions around, I guess, multi-day events, which uh, you're in luck, Mary, because that's our topic tonight. We'll get to that in just a minute. <laughs> but um, that is our, our, our next episode topic. So um, that's perfect for, for you. Um, but yes, certainly some questions there. We've also had a couple of new ratings on Apple Podcasts as well. So we've got five ratings up there now, which is fantastic. Uh, and we're all on five stars, which is even better. So um, just a reminder to anyone, if you do feel the, the urge to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, we'd certainly appreciate that. And that, that helps to uh, spread the word about the podcast, which is, is very much appreciated from, from us as well. Yeah, Mary. Um, so Mary Mitchell is a very keen uh, triathlete. She's she's done a lot of um, really challenging and fantastic um, triathlons, and particularly the Ironman events. Uh, but yeah, one of the the topics that she also mentioned we are looking. Well, there's two that we'll we'll have in the future, and. Um, one we've got lined up will be particularly more specifically on recovery optimization and, and strategies. And then the other one will 
we'll cover a bit more in terms of um, during fueling nutrition options and what you can do if you get you know sick of um, sickly sweet options or purchasing options we'll we'll have a um, podcast on that particular area as well so yeah so we've covered some of them and definitely we'll cover a lot of them tonight and then we'll, we'll cover some more in the in the future yeah so big thanks to Mary and I guess if anyone else wants to send through questions or, or feedback around the podcast they can do that at the long munch on Facebook Twitter or Instagram And Alan, as um, relaxed as you look right now, you um, also, I, I've heard, want to get something off your chest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things, Steph, uh, you know, we talk about this on the podcast every time we have our A episode, which we have this week for the first time in a little while, actually. Um, there's all those things that, that we hear and we see, whether it's from, from athletes, whether it's on social media, um, or in the lay press, uh, and then when we get together in the lab and we're talking about things, we sort of have a chat about it and we kind of roll our eyes and say, oh, don't get me started, Steph. Now, today's one is, I guess, one that I've seen a lot with athletes. Our topic is uh, multi-day events, um, which we'll get to a little bit more in a minute. Uh, one of the things, I think, with the multi-day events that, that I've often seen, uh, and I'm sure you've seen it as well, is people rock up to this race with a wallet full of cash, but very little idea of what they're going to do in terms of what they're eating and drinking from the time that the first day's racing finishes till the time the next day's racing starts. Um, it, it's a crucial period in terms of you know recovery from um, you know the first stage and preparation for the next one, uh, but it never ceases to amaze me how many people don't have a plan in place. They don't. They just go. Oh, I'll just eat whatever. Um, they don't vet their accommodation to work out even if they have any cooking facilities so they end up having to go with takeaway or whatever they can scrounge because they actually don't have much more than a microwave and a kettle to cook with um and yeah just lack of planning uh, we've, we talked about it uh in the context of you know single stage uh you know ultra events and just you know not leaving long enough to plan your race nutrition but i guess now we're talking about what you eat you know off the when you're not running or riding or whatever it is, um, exactly the same thing, just lack of organisation, lack of planning, uh, and that includes things like accommodation, includes things like vetting, okay, what what are the available places to get food around me? Um, and we will discuss this a bit more in the, the interview um, later on with, with our guest as well. So, Alan, what topic do we have on today? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we sort of alluded to the fact that it's about stage racing already, but it's episode 13A, and our topic is how do I plan for a multi-day event? Uh, now, there's obviously all different types of multi-day events. You can have, you know, multi-day ultramarathon type things. You can have, obviously, road cycling, uh, and you can have mountain bike events and, and you know, multi-day, like, adventure racing and that kind of thing as well. Uh, and, obviously, there's different formats in terms of, you know, supported events versus, you know, self-sufficient events. So, for this episode, we're going to focus on the supported events. So, events where you have, uh, you know, people around you or accommodation to come back to where you can store food and things. Uh, and we'll focus in a future episode on maybe some of those self-supported ones where you've got to literally carry everything on your back for the entire event because um, it's obviously a, you know quite a specialised area in itself. 
Um, so our guest today is James Moran, and he's a, a, both a clinical dietitian and a performance nutritionist. That's sort of the, the language they use in the UK. Um, and he works with two different pro cycling teams. He works with Team Ineos Grenadiers, which you know, anyone who knows cycling will know they're, they're basically the biggest team in the sport, um, both in terms of budget and, and probably over the last decade results. I think they've won, what is it, seven of the, the last 10 Tour de France's. A um, couple of Giro d'Italia, including the one just finished on the weekend with Egan Bernal um, and, you know, multiple Welter Espanias as well. So uh, in terms of stage racing, they're, they're kind of known as the, the top of the tree. Um, a bit challenged in the last couple of years, but um, definitely the most successful team in the last decade over over the multi-day events. Uh, and he also does a bit of work for UNOX, uh, which is a development team uh, based out of Norway as well. So he works for both of those. But James has had um, a history of working in, in sports nutrition. Before this, he worked with the English Institute of Sport uh, and particularly with British cycling. Uh, so more so the track track cycling side of things, uh, as well as para swimming and, and equestrian of all things. Um, and, and he's worked in a whole bunch of other things as well, worked in the, the NHS in the UK uh, as a clinical dietitian prior to that as well. So a wealth of experience across a whole bunch of different areas, but we thought it'd be really great to, to speak to James, uh, given that he works both with a development team, but also with, with Ineos Grenadiers, um, who are at the, at the top of pro cycling in terms of uh, you know, how the professionals do it in stage racing. And then I guess thinking about that, what we can take away from that uh, to use for, for, you know, our own stage racing uh, where we might be doing uh, more sort of recreational or, or amateur um, levels of the sport uh, and what are some of the, the key concepts that we can take away and maybe learn from the professionals that we can apply at other levels as well. Yeah. Awesome. Looking mm. forward to um, listening to James. Yeah, and, and I think one thing we probably should uh, just preface before we go into this interview is we talk about a whole different uh, array of, of topics uh, and, and some of the logistical stuff as well, which is really great to hear. Um, one thing, you know, sort of uh, in hindsight, we thought about the interview is we didn't probably go through sort of the nuts and bolts scientifically of, um, you know, the stage racing and particularly, I guess, what's different compared to a one-day race. So we've we talked about sort of some of the aspects of one-day racing before. We've talked about, you know, uh, what should I eat and drink prior to my long training session or, or race, mm -hmm. you know, with Dr. Sam Impey back in episode 2A. We talked about carbohydrate loading with um, uh, with Jose Areta, and that was in episode 9A. Um, and We've talked about, you know, sort of gut issues and things like that that can come up along the way. But the, probably the one thing that we haven't really talked about so much uh, to date is the recovery aspect. So what am I doing after today's stage in preparation for tomorrow's stage? Um, and, and so I guess, you know, traditionally people have talked about the three R's of recovery, you know, rehydration, replacing your fluid losses. Um, so we talked a bit about, you know, measuring fluid losses and, and planning around that with with Dr. Lewis James back in episode 3A. Um, mm -hmm. There's the um, the refueling, so restoring, uh, you know, your, your carbohydrate um, that you've lost your glycogen uh, during the the stage in preparation for the next day, which is kind of fits in with the stuff we talked about with Sam and and with Karen about fueling. Uh, it's just obviously you're then doing that after today, thinking about what you've got to come tomorrow. Uh, and then there's the repair aspect, which is is the protein side of things, uh, which we don't really talk about in detail in this episode, uh, but we're going to do a dedicated episode around what should I eat and drink after my either hard training session or, or a race in the concept 
um, in the context of a stage race uh, at a later date. So we'll go into a lot more of the nuts and bolts and the, and the science behind that um, in, a, in a later episode, uh, whereas today we'll focus more on the, the logistical challenges, I guess, around doing that in the context of, of a multi-day event. Yeah, yep, yep. And we'll add in the other two R's when we talk about recovery optimization. Yeah. So no longer the three, although we say five, although when we spoke to Ben, we were going up to six. Yes, yes. And then becoming pirates because there's so many R's yes. involved. Yeah, R's. absolutely. So yeah, yeah, that's the other thing. We talked a bit about that post-exercise rehydration with, with Ben Desbro uh, in that episode around, you know, can I have a beer? after my long ride or run or whatever it is. Uh, and that was back in episode 11, A. Hey. 11. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we've sort of covered a lot of these aspects before, but this is sort of putting it all together um, in, in that context of a multi-stage event. Awesome. All right, let's do it. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into this interview with James Moran. So, James Moran, thank you so much for joining us on the Long Munch podcast. How are things going over there in Manchester? Yeah, all good. I'm uh, just back from Altitude Camp in Tenerife, so I'm, I'm currently in quarantine at home. Um, so oh, yeah. just, yeah, managing with working from home and doing a little bit on the indoor bike um, until I can get outside the next yeah. few days. How long are you in quarantine? Um, so we can do like a test to release on day five. So I'll do the test tomorrow and then I can come out on Friday. So oh, that's it's not good. too bad. And then I've got a week then before I go off to the next race. So at least I've got some some outside time before I go away to work again. Mm, yeah, sounds uh, – ours is like 14 days in a hotel. Okay, yeah, can't complain then. <laughs> <laughs> but has there been any any cases where it's been a convenient excuse for you in the last couple of days? <laughs> um, no. No, no, there's no, there's no positives to it. Uh, no, 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 fair yeah. enough. Cool. Um, so obviously the reason why we wanted to talk to you, James, was our topic today is how should I plan for a, a multi-stage race over several days? And, and you work as a nutritionist and dietitian with two cycling teams, Ineos uh, Grenadiers being uh, obviously the big one in terms of, you know, World Tour, uh, but also uh, Uno team, which is a Norwegian uh, Pro Conti team as well. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how long you've been working with Ineos and, and how that's been so far for you? Yeah, so this is my uh, second season with the Ineos Grenadiers, as we as we now called. Um, so joined kind of just before COVID and everything, managed to to go to a, a race, and then yeah, the world world went into lockdown. So last year was a a tough season with meeting guys for the first time on a race and having to do lots over Zoom and WhatsApp. Um, and then, yeah, this season's been a bit bit more open, been able to kind of meet guys more in person and, and build some relationships. Um, so, yeah, that's it's been a, a funny funny two years, not a typical uh, way to, to join a, a team. But, yeah, so far, so good. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it'd be really interesting for you because you work for two different teams at two different levels of the sport. And obviously, you know, Ineos Grenadiers is kind of well known for having probably the biggest budget in pro cycling. So from a nutrition standpoint, were there things that when you started working with these guys that really stood out to you in terms of, oh, wow, like we can do this because we've got the resources that maybe you thought you couldn't do or, or you hadn't seen done before? Yeah, I mean, we, we're really lucky in the fact that we, when I started, we had two full-time chefs. We've now got three full-time chefs. And wow. 
yeah, and they they're not just they're unbelievable chefs. So like you know, two of them have worked in Michelin starred restaurants. Um, one of them has worked like with with England rugby and been to the World Cup. So they're really experienced, skilled chefs, but they're just really good guys as well. Because I'm sure we've all worked with chefs in the past that are really good cooks, but kind of very ego driven or don't understand that in the in the world of elite sport it's kind of not about the chef it's about the athlete and and doing what's needed for them so mm. for me that's that's the biggest biggest kind of resource that we have um the, the three guys that we can work with and collaborate and just make make the food tick all the boxes nutritionally but also keep the keep the riders happy and yeah that's that's a big thing and then the guys we, we have a kitchen truck as well which is kind of half uh, kitchen and half half dining room so again this just allows us to control the environment that the riders eating on race and you know control the food that's provided the the lighting the music so it's yeah that's that's a real big big deal for, for us as nutritionists um yeah in terms of resource yeah, awesome. And we might come back and talk a little bit sort of later on down the track about, I mean, I guess for, for people listening who won't have access to that kind of stuff if they're going and doing, you know, an amateur race somewhere, I guess what things are still common that, that you, you know, you can still take away and, and use um, when you don't have those sort of resources. But we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, yeah. You mentioned that you've got, you know, three chefs with the team. Uh, I believe you also got three nutritionists or dietitians with the team as well. So do you want to talk a bit about how that kind of works with the three of you and, and how you sort of divide up that? And is there specific roles that you have? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, again, we're lucky with the nutrition resource. Um, my colleagues at work at other teams, like I know you've had Sam Impey on and stuff, he's kind of on his own in, in the team. But, yeah, we're lucky to have three nutritionists. So there's myself that's um, registered dietitian and uh, performance nutritionist uh, there's Javi Gonzalez who's a performance nutritionist he's the lead nutritionist for the department um, and then there's Ainoa Prieto who's a dietitian and nutritionist as well so it works quite well in that we all have fairly different backgrounds um, like Javier's come from a more academic standpoint so he brings a lot of kind of different ideas and perspectives um, I know has worked a lot in football and basketball um, and I've worked in the NHS for a long time, the National Health Service, and then worked in different Olympic sports in the UK. So between the three of us, we've got different skill sets and experiences. It helps as well that the, the other two guys, especially I know, can speak uh, Spanish and Italian. So with the South American riders that we have, that's that's really useful. And, and Javi, his family are Spanish, so he speaks Spanish like as his second language. So there's only me that's kind of um, yeah not able to speak <laughs> Spanish to, to that level. I can I can get by with a little bit of Italian if I have to. But um, so yeah, we, we kind of all have different rider groups that we support. So mm. we get allocated to like a coach. So I work with with Tim Kerrison and his riders that he coaches, um, and Javi works with another coach and I know it works with a Spanish coach and the South American riders. So we're responsible for a core group of riders. And then we divide up the, the race program, depending on where those riders are likely to, to follow. Um, sometimes there'll be overlap. There'll be riders that I don't necessarily work with day to day, but I'm on race with it. So we, we have a lot of um, communication and meetings where we discuss where, where riders are up to, so we can make sure that they're getting the same service on race. 
Yeah, yeah, and obviously, uh, yeah, at the time of recording, the Giro's on at the moment, which has a lot of, I guess, the Spanish-speaking contingent from the team at that race. So I guess that's why exactly. you've got the time to talk to us today, um, yeah. whereas the other guys probably yeah. don't. Yeah, yeah, so I know was there yeah. on, on the Giro at the moment. So, yeah, it was the rest day yesterday, so she would have probably squeezed a short run on the rest day because it's one of the only times you get a chance to exercise on a Grand Tour, and then it's a mm. really important stage today. So be watching that yeah. later. Yeah, and obviously, uh, you know, you mentioned before with, with COVID last year, it was obviously, uh, you know, you probably wouldn't have done a lot of travel with the team. Has that changed a bit this year? Is it kind of... Uh, I mean, it, it's hard for us over here in Australia to sort of get a sense of what's happening on the ground, but is it kind of almost biz, back to business as usual for you guys in terms of travel or not really? Mm, not really. I mean, last year we we had like the where the season shut down and then when it opened up again, there was a lot of travel, but compressed in a really short, short period of time. So there was kind of, I did like two races and then it was the Tour de France. So it was a real compressed kind of meeting guys for the first time, then a race, and then you're in the Tour de France, like the highest pressure race of the season. Mm. Whereas this year, we weren't allowed to go to training camp from the UK because of restrictions. So that would have normally been a good opportunity to to, to build relationships and do some education. So we missed out on that. But then we've been able to get to a lot more early season races. But it's, yeah, it's, it's still quite tricky with the amount of pcr covid tests that we have to have and providing documentation at the airport and letters from national federations and the team to prove that you're not going on holiday and then <laughs> everything's still very much in a bubble when you're away with the team and regular tests and face masks at all times so yeah it's it's yeah very much not back to normal but i think there's light at the end of the tunnel yeah and i guess for you like i mean obviously you, you only started with the team last season so it's probably you don't have a, a good point of reference but I, I wonder whether and some of the other guys on the team might have commented on this whether the tour was kind of easier in a way last year because you didn't have the crowds and the amount of media and all that kind of stuff probably uh took some of the the circus away from the event a little bit yeah possibly i mean there was still people there um, but yeah, no, nowhere near the, the the usual numbers. But I think maybe the media and the fan circus was replaced by the kind of COVID circus and true, yeah, and the kind of um, stress around that. And in the tour, they had you know if you had two positive tests within your bubble, the team would be expelled. So there was like a a sort of Damocles kind of hanging over teams all the time, <laughs> and there was a, a lot of paranoia and stress. So yeah, I guess one one circus was replaced by by the COVID circus. Yeah, I remember the Giro was, that's when it all kind of happened, didn't it? I think one or two teams got completely chopped from the race and then a few riders and everyone was kind of like, well, are we going to be out tomorrow kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty. And then for riders as well, you know, races being cancelled or, you know, there's still, it's not, it's getting better. But last season there was uncertainty whether the season would finish or, you know, people trying to, plan their season and periodize and peak for certain events were then almost not wanting to peak too late. So when you think about stage races as opposed to one day events, um, what are the things that I guess come to mind from a nutrition perspective that are that are this very similar? And then what are the things that are, are you know, very different? Yeah. I mean, with, with, like one day races, they're, they're almost kind of 
yeah, I, as the name says, a one day. So kind of riders will leave absolutely everything out on on the day. Whereas in a stage race, guys are playing a long game, you know, for whether it's one week or three weeks. So they, they're trying to conserve energy on certain days. You know, some riders will, when you look at their energy expenditure on a, say like a sprint stage, they, they'll have expended very few few calories on a stage like that. You know, it might be 180 kilometers, but they might have been tucked away, hiding from the wind all day. And just mm. kind of intensity has been really low all day. Whereas in a one day race like <clears throat> Flanders or one of the classics races, you know, guys are leaving absolutely everything out out on the race. So in terms of fueling, then we, we need to fuel that a lot more aggressively with, with carbohydrate kind of before and during. Whereas in a stage race, if you fueled every single stage like that, there's the, the danger of actually gaining weight across a, a three-week race mm. so we we periodize things a lot more um within a stage race for individual riders and the intensity in the one-day races is obviously higher so stage races will tend to be a lot more glycogen dominant there'll be a lot more kind of short sharp accelerations and decelerations and lots of fights for position whereas in a stage race it, it tends to be a lot more formulaic that they once the kind of breakaway is gone, then the, the pace in the peloton can, can settle down quite a lot. So, yeah, we definitely periodize the nutrition a lot more for, for stage races, whereas for a big one-day race, it'd be, you know, high carb in the 24 hours, you know, to maximally glycogen load and then aggressive fueling kind of on the hour, every hour throughout the race. Um, but then you've often got like two days to recover, so you don't always necessarily have to be super aggressive with, carbs in recovery because you've got a few days then before you need to to replenish and go again whereas in a stage race you might have kind of two mountain days back to back so recovery might need to be super aggressive or you might have an easy day going into a hard day or a hard day going into an easy day so there's a lot more kind of micro adjustments with with carbohydrate generally in in stage racing yeah and how do you um I guess for the, for the listeners, how do you know, um, you know, in terms of the energy that is expended, um, you know, in the days versus the stage races, is that something that your team has, you know, um, worked out or how do you kind of track that? Yeah, so as the nutrition team, we will like predict energy expenditure, um, yeah, just as a, a start point. So we'll take into account like the terrain, the distance, um, previous races, we'll speak to the coaches and then we'll try and come up with a, a kind of kilojoule figure to, you know, to just so we've got mm-hmm. kind of a, and yeah, a, a window to aim for. Um, and then obviously mm-hmm. we can compare that after the race with the rider's power data, um, which is collected mm-hmm. and heart rate and subjective feelings as well. You know, a 4,000 kilojoule day, can sometimes actually feel quite different to a rider you know they might come back to the bus and say oh that was that was a really tough day and the weather as well so we we might adjust things based on that so they're the kind of things that that we look at really we we do a lot of planning in advance so at the moment we we're looking at all the, the tour stages and predicting energy expenditure and speaking with the coaches and the the uh, director sportif so they're like the in-race coach to, to see you know what what they think the particular demands will be each day yep yep and so during the actual stages do you ever kind of plan nutrition 
um, in there, not because it's, you know, necessary for that particular stage, but because you're thinking about the, you know, the next stage and the, and the, um, the stages ahead. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're always focusing first on the stage demands for that day, but Mm-hmm. yeah there's there's been kind of tales in the past of riders who've been trying to kind of manage weight so a bit, a bit concerned about kind of overfueling the easier days and they've, they've perhaps kind of underdone the fueling and then two days later when they really need to perform then it's it's caught up with them so yeah we're always kind of looking obviously in the here and now at the the stage we've got that day but then looking looking what's to come as well and looking what riders uh weight and body composition is like then and the, the targets as well and just refining things as we go um but yeah it's it's quite common that you'll you'll hear of riders who underfueled an an easier day <laughs> um but then there's the risk of getting caught out the next day or the day after so yeah so it sounds like you have yep. to be a bit careful like that as a concept it's kind of useful to you know uh, periodize and, and have less maybe on some of those easier days but you want to make sure you don't go too far with that exactly and it's always kind of easier to overfuel on the bike and then you can kind of you know claw things back later on if, if somebody feels that they have overfueled on the bike but the way that as well that riders describe how racing's changed over this this past two years that every stage now just feels a lot more intense you know especially since with the uncertainty of um covid that every stage now there's there's a fight and there's a battle and you might look on paper that something is an easier stage but actually when the riders are in there you know they're saying that there's not really that many easy stages anymore so it's always we would give like guidance around fueling but we would always say you know adjust it to the race demands you know there's no point as a nutritionist giving like a fueling plan based on you know estimations but then the circumstances completely change so we always have to work that flexibility and the riders knowing how they need to adapt fueling plans for for the situation yeah and i think that's probably relevant to i guess a lot of listeners that might be doing sort of amateur stage racing whether it's like ultra running you know multi-stage ultra running or uh you know mountain bike stage racing or something like that or even you know amateur level road cycling where probably you don't have i would say quite as much in terms of peaks and troughs of of effort just the you know, tactically and the level of competition is going to be obviously different um something like running it's probably you know steph you could you've done stage races running uh, it's going to be more i guess similar to like a time trial every day in terms of uh, you know you're going to expend a, a fair chunk each day because you're not going to cruise around or in running you don't get that benefit anyway you know drafting to the the same extent particularly in, in ultra running so it's probably going to be uh, less sort of down days compared to full-on days steph um, yeah, um, I guess, yeah, it depends on the type of stage racing and things you do because um, one of the stage races I did was um, Trans Rockies in um, Boulder in the US and you you actually ran with, um, with a partner and you couldn't go further than, I don't know, let's say 100 metres or so ahead, but you could, um, you could tow each other so I guess that's the drafting that you got mm. so um yeah so you could you know if one partner was hurting you could actually the other one would tow you um but but yeah generally speaking um in in those stages yeah yeah you're pretty much going hard each each day 
um, yeah. in the ones that I was doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in terms of, I guess, when the, the stage finish finishes for, for the riders, what are the types of um, things you're looking at from a nutrition perspective to prepare them for the next um, the next day, the next stage? Yeah, so when we look at kind of recovery, it's always recovering from, from what they've what they've done and then you know preparing for what's what's to come so like we discussed before like recovery from like a one-day race where you've not got a race for another week or three days looks very different to kind of two really hard back-to-back stages in in a grand tour where there's going to be quite a degree of glycogen depletion so we really want to be be aggressive with you know feeding in those first four hours and like james morton who who was our predecessor at the team and who's my um, supervisor on my master's. He he always used to say, you know, it's textbook sports nutrition in those circumstances. You're trying to hit like, you know, one to 1.2 grams per kilo of carbs for the first four hours. And we certainly do that when when it's needed. Um, So yeah, it's, it's very much a carbohydrate focus. Protein, we keep fairly consistent. So good quality kind of leucine rich proteins, you know, every every three to four hours, whether it's an easy stage or a hard stage or even a, a rest day, because we want to, you know, help help with that muscle recovery and prevent kind of loss of lean tissue. Um so it's the it's the carbohydrates that will will scale up and down. And then we, we try and individualize it as well because some guys struggle with appetite after a you know really big day. So we'll try and get more carbs in liquid liquid format with smoothies and making making more of kind of fructose and and things to help with liver resynthesis and recovery other guys like to eat solid food so they will you know want cake and rice and pasta and actual actual proper food to eat um because they get fed up of lots of liquids and and sweet foods um so they're the kind of things we look at really in that that acute recovery so again we're lucky with with having the chefs that they will often they'll prepare the recovery meal um, so it can be heated on the on the bus, um, which makes life easier. <laughs> and I guess one of the key differences maybe for you guys is that you know you often have then you know big transfers where you're getting on a bus and driving maybe two, three, four hours to wherever the start of the next day stage is. Yeah. That... Whereas you know, in amateur racing, it's going to be more, you know, probably around a hub where you you stay in the same place each day. Um, and so you don't have that long transfer. So you probably got a little bit more option or staying in accommodation or something where you've got facilities. Uh, you know, obviously you got to prepare it yourself. You don't, you're not probably going to have a chef with you or you might have your mum yeah. or dad or someone, um, or partner or whoever. Um, but it gives you, I guess, a bit more options there, whereas you guys have got to literally get it on the run. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes that, you know, if the stage finishes quite late and then they're eating, sometimes the riders can be having a recovery meal at like 6 o'clock, you know, if the stage has been later or whatever, and then mm. they've quickly then got to turn around and try and have dinner, which is then setting them up for the next day. So we have to be quite creative when we see that happening and try and get, you know, carbs in in different different formats as well, um, using, you know, using sushi or diff- different things that are quite quick and easy to, to eat and not, not very bulky um, as well, like in a long stage race like the Tour or a three-week race just keeping it varied and interesting as well because you know riders get bored very quickly of eating a mountain of rice and pasta every day um they understand that it's needed some days but 
some sometimes guys will just say I'm, I'm fed up of eating so you have to be quite creative to make sure that they're getting enough of the right foods in so they recover the next day um, which is a challenge I, I quite like um, yeah being creative with the chefs to come up with those things yeah yeah and so it sounds like um I guess there might be the perception, I guess, at that professional level, there's going to be a lot of use of, you know, supplements, you know, protein powders and bars and, and all of those kind of things. Uh, but it sounds like the focus is really on normal food as much as possible, unless it's it's not possible either from convenience or tolerance. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we, we use um, yeah, protein protein powders and and supplements from a kind of health, health perspective. But yeah, you know, when guys are riding a lot on the bike and having gels and drinks and processed products, which are a necessity, there's a big need or want for just normal, normal foods, you know, that, that give that psychological boost as well as, mm. as the uh, physiological. So yeah, definitely it's a big, big food first culture, which when you have a chef, you know, it's, it just makes life, life easier. Oh, for sure. Yeah. In the um, stage racing, um, you, the during nutrition, so do, um, do you kind of alternate between, you know, like um, gels, is it gels, bars, and do they do, um, so I know something that um, Scratch Labs, a company, they usually do, I think, a lot of like the rice cakes and, and things for, for cyclists. Do the, is that the type of food that they're, um, chewing down on the stage racing as well yeah yeah definitely so we have as well as like um, chefs we have what's called carers um, which are quite unique to to cycling but they yeah they kind of do lots of lots of work behind the scenes but they they make yeah rice cakes um, so they're made from like um, like arboreal rice and we put different different flavor combinations in there into little little like about 20 25 grams of carbohydrate parcels so they can we can vary the flavors quite a lot we'll sometimes make like homemade flapjacks or the chefs will make a cake or we'll you know if 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 the riders kind of fancy something different we'll just try different different options to keep them keep them entertained and then yeah we use a combination of of bars gels um you know diff, yeah different products and then yeah carbohydrate drinks some riders, you know, really like the feeling of, of having solid food in the stomach. So, yeah, although kind of some, some foods you might look at and think from a nutritional point of view, maybe aren't, you know, the exact glucose to fructose ratio and blah, blah, blah. But some riders just would want something different or a different taste or texture. So we try and accommodate that because ultimately if riders are getting bored or fed up or not enjoying what they're fueling with then they're going to fuel less so we have to kind of remember that you know professional bike riders are still people at the end of the day we can't just treat it as a kind of mm-hmm. carbs in equals carbs out exercise yeah. um yeah but yeah we're, we're lucky because we're we're partnered with sis so um we can we go to them with kind of new product innovations and ideas and we devise kind of in-house bespoke products that, that are kind of not commercially available always and we can we can have like different drink blends or different gel formulations or they're launching like a like a jelly chew bar um which is something we've we've been working cool. with them on so that's that's a really good partnership that we can actually come up with new solutions to yeah. the problems we're seeing yep 
Yeah, that's good. For sure. Yep. Uh, one of the other things I was interested in there is our previous episode was about sort of ultra-distance racing, you know, usually a one-off, but that could be you know, ultra-running, you know, 10-plus hours. We had a 24-hour mountain biker, an Ironman athlete. And one of the common themes there is often that concept of flavour fatigue. You just get sick of sweet-tasting things all the time. Now, obviously, in, in road cycling, the stages are generally shorter than that, but they can still be five, six, seven <laughs> hours in, in some cases. Do your guys ever report that back that they just want savoury foods? Mm. No, we actually had this conversation on camp with a few of the guys, and for them, it's more the texture than the than the the flavour. They they all reported they get fed up of like gels and rice cakes, the texture. So they're saying, you know, even if you did like a, we do from time to time do a savoury rice cake, but they're never really that popular and. SAS were asking me about a savoury bar and the guys were like, yeah, it's more the, the texture that they that they get fatigue from. Um, so that's that's something that we're yeah, working with SAS, developing some new new textured kind of bars. But yeah, when I've worked with kind of recreational athletes, that's always something that crops up, especially with kind of lower, lower intensity, more kind of ultra endurance guys. Um, I remember working with a guy who was he was doing like this, a, tra- a trail in the Yukon, looked like a like you had to carry everything. And we'd done his his kind of nutritional plan. We tested it when he was training in Scotland, and then when he got to the extreme cold, his flavour preferences and taste just completely changed, and things he couldn't eat because of the the environmental conditions and the kind of original plan kind of went out of the window. So yeah, but no, with our guys, it's more texture than 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 flavour. So it sounds like a preference towards like a bit more crunchy type stuff. Yeah, sometimes and yeah, just less, less kind of sloppy stuff. <laughs> Whereas on you know yeah. on easier days they they quite like to to chew and feel like they're, they're having some some real food. They understand on on the hard intense parts then you know gels and the easily digestible drinks and solutions are, are necessary. But on the easier days and easier phases they yeah they quite like something with a bit of chew and a bit of crunch. Um, so we, we talked obviously about the, the recovery side of things before. Are there particular problems or challenges that you find that the guys sometimes face that might prevent them from sort of getting, I guess, what you would consider sort of their optimal recovery nutrition? Um, so, yeah, so it's usually a logistical problem. So like if somebody, the team are quite well drilled now, but if somebody gets wins a race, they're, they're on the podium and then they have media and then they have doping control. And quite often all the riders are back at the bus and then the bus will leave and, and like a carer or a member of staff will then bring that rider from from the podium back to the hotel. So the team are very kind of in tune with that, that the extra food, recovery food and recovery drinks will go to with that carer to the podium to make sure that their, their recovery isn't compromised. It's almost like you win a race, but then your recovery, you can actually be penalised, you know, if you if you get carried away mm. and you, you, you're with all that. So the team's very very good at that um that side of things but it's just it, i get i guess for transfer over to kind of recreational or sub elite athletes it just comes down to that planning you know planning the different situations and eventualities and ha- having food that's that's portable and then there and available you know in case you're not able to eat your recovery meal within a couple of hours you've got a backup plan you've got something you can just eat that's that's wrapped that'll still meet the needs nutritionally yeah yeah 
And do you, have you encountered any issues with um, with the guys, not so much on a, an individual day, but sort of built up over time, like gut issues or anything like that, that makes sort of getting what's optimal sort of harder as a race goes on, particularly, I guess, maybe the, the three-week races? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think since since like this new nutrition team's come, so there's three of us and two of us, you know, clinical dietitians, we've probably zoned in a lot more on kind of gut health and gut function. Um and been asking a lot of questions whereas yeah i don't i don't know if that was always kind of tackled in in the past and yeah we we do see not as not as much as obviously when you work with runners and triathletes they tend to have pretty pretty robust um guts but certainly with guys if we're you know looking at following like a low fiber or low residue a few days leading into a mountain stage some guys can be prone to to constipation so we have to kind of manage that and have have things wrapped wrapped around that um but yeah nothing nothing like nothing too bad really especially from a sports nutrition point of view because we we try and test the strategies in training and in smaller races so when we get to the grand tours guys are really familiar with with what they're doing and how their body responds um but yeah we certainly have like gut health kind of package and look to use um you know prebiotic supplements to reduce gut infections and things like that so we yeah we we are pretty good and i think as well it can be a bit hard for some cultures um to actually talk about some of these issues i think in the uk and probably australia it's quite open as a nutritionist you speak to riders about you know how the guts are and whatever terminology you use but some some cultures it's still a bit they're not really comfortable talking in in those terms so yeah i think there's still work to be done so in many multi-day events, whether it's um, yeah, whether it's running or cycling, there's there's you know significant variation in the length of individual stages. So um, do you adjust for that in your planning? Um, and then does the adjustment only for the during race nutrition, or is it in the time between stages as well? Yeah, it's both. So yeah, from from breakfast we would adjust for kind of that day and, and how well somebody's recovered from the day before. So we might have a plan based on expected kind of numbers and, and predictions. But then if, if you're speaking with a rider and they, they feel, well, they jump on the scales and they're a heck of a lot lighter than, than what you're expecting and they feel a bit flat, then you might might titrate that up a little bit. Um, and then, yeah, in race will depend on the, the length of the stage, the the weather you know the the rider's role within that stage um we'll refine that and then yeah recovery and and dinner they're the other two big feeding points will will adjust day to day especially for like the the gc or the general classification so they're like the guys who are trying to win these races often you know we we really need to manage energy balance across the three-week race as well and it you can quickly see how guys can can gain weight through a three week race if you're not paying paying attention and often the mountain stages where they need to be at their light, lightest will come in the last last part of the race so yeah there's constant kind of micro adjusting based on feedback based on weight and we, we're constantly tweaking so that they arrive in the the moments that they need to be light and well fueled in the best shape possible um I, you know you hear stories in the past of guys gaining you know three five kilos through a stage race and yeah, that would be a disaster for, for our guys. So it's something we, we're constantly trying to get that balance between being well fueled and recovered, but managing energy balance as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and in your past experience as well as your current role, are there any common, really common myths or misconceptions that, you know, that the writers have about nutrition um, for the multi-day events? Yeah, I think yeah, I think there's still a misconception that you can kind of eat, eat what you want. You know, it's like, well, I'm going to be expending all this energy. I can eat what I want. And as long as I'm eating enough, that should be OK. But it depends on, on your goals, really. Um, I think, you know, some guys can lose a lot of muscle mass, you know, if they're not just paying attention on the portions and, and how they're fueling. And like I said, there other guys can gain gain body fat through through a, a race. So, you know, added fats and calories can, can still add up um, over these blocks, especially, you know, the old fashioned like pasta parties and people putting loads of cheese on and having cakes here, here there and everywhere. So still being cautious with energy balance. Um and then yeah, just you know, making sure that you're getting enough carbohydrates in for the for the big bigger days. You know, if you're wanting to win a multi day event, especially at the elite level, then fueling and high carbohydrates essential for those days. I think there's still a bit of a misconception that some guys do low carb and things like that but you know if you're trying to win these races you, you can't do it on a low carbohydrate diet it's uh mm. yeah unless you you know you're doing something really prolonged and low intensity but even then you know that that's not kind of the world these guys operate in mm. so it sounds like like obviously you know there's easier days and harder days and it sounds like from what you're saying there i guess what might happen without sort of thorough planning for this is that they're probably going to overfuel the lighter days and underfuel the heavier days so everything's a bit same same but the workload's going up and down either side of that so you end up kind of the worst of both scenarios yeah exactly exactly that yeah and you often see recovery is impaired and kind of weight weight gain will go up so you're getting the you're getting the worst of, of both worlds instead of getting the best um so that's that's you know, whenever I work with an athlete, it's trying to understand the demands of, of their event and what success will kind of look like and then working the nutritional plan around that instead of just treating every day the same and not really not really planning what the nutrition should look like for different days. Mm, yeah. And does that planning also change? Like, say you might have a stage race, you know, some of them might only be two or three days long and then some of them, obviously, the Grand Tours are three weeks long. Is there anything that's particularly different about either the nutrition aspect of it or sort of the philosophy of, of what you're providing and how you're providing it for the, the three week races versus the two or three day races, or is it just the same thing over a longer period of time? Yeah. I mean, for the three day races, it's, you know, fatigue then starts to, to creep in. So, you know, that can then make people make strange decisions, you know, around that, around their fueling and nutrition. So you have to be kind of a lot more disciplined with, you know, making sure you're eating enough at the right time. It's very easy to kind of miss something or like I remember in the tour last year, one of the riders saying to me at the dinner table, I'm just fed up of eating. There's like five days left. And he's like, we had to, and that's me and the chef had to come up with a, a different meal just to get him to eat enough. Whereas if, if uh, we'd not been on the ball, he probably would have left the kitchen truck having not eaten enough. And then, you know, each day you, you're kind of going down. Um, with a three day race, you know, you don't have that same, level of fatigue both psychologically and physically weight's not as much of a kind of issue really i mean you're not you're not going to gain fat mass in in three days unless you you're not going crazy but even within a three-day race say if the last stage is a, a mountain stage and we will still use like a 
a low residue, low fiber diet to help those guys peak for that one day. Um, but yeah, you can probably get away with a bit more in a, in a shorter stage race in, in terms of, um, in those kind of things, you could overfuel the three days. And then if you did, if your weight did creep up over the next few weeks, you've got time to bring it down. Whereas in, in a three week stage race, we we're just always trying to balance things out. Mm. And I think that fatigue is a really important point, and particularly for for listeners who might be doing whether it's a, a running event or a mountain bike event or something like that, is that as you said, you know, over time and, and charity events too. You, know, you see those sort of you know ten day charity bike rides and things that you know, uh, it's it's easy to get complacent as the days go past, either because you're just enjoying yourself and you you sort of into the habits and then the habit slips, or as you said, is the fatigue sets in and you just you're not thinking about it as much. So you're having that, uh, you're having something to, to constantly remind you of what you need to do and having that discipline to, to eat it, even if you don't necessarily feel like it, but it's, it's knowing that it's fuel for your event as opposed to eating it because you're enjoying eating it necessarily. I mean, as long as it's not causing you problems, um, that, that discipline can be useful as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think hunger can be, yeah, it can be quite a funny, uh, indicator in these, situations you know it's not always a true reflection on actual nutritional need or status it could just be you could be well fueled but hungry because you're tired <laughs> or you could be hungry because you're under fueled so it's it, yeah trying not to rely on hunger but just having having plans that you you rehearsed and you're confident in mm. yeah um Anything else in terms of the advice or the, the focus on certain aspects of nutrition for, for multi-day racing that you would change maybe working with a, a recreational athlete compared to a professional one? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty similar. I, I would guess it's just too often recreational athletes, they'll focus on their equipment, they'll focus on the training. They might focus a bit on the nutrition around training, but they won't then think about how how that's going to look within the race. So, you know, for a multi-day event, doing the same process that me and, and my nutrition colleagues would do is trying to break break down the demands of the event and looking at, okay, what are the potential areas that I'm going to really need to, to fuel well and what could be the challenges for that, whether it's access or availability or, you know, say the weather changes and it's not going to be possible to eat and get things out of my pocket, then what's what's my backup plan? And just kind of, yeah, taking a step back and thinking, yeah, what 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 potentially could go wrong? How can I plan as well as possible? And then practicing in the conditions that, that you'll be training in, which is quite hard. Like I've done cycling events in France, like in the Alps and in the Pyrenees, but I live in, in the UK. So you've not got mountains, you've not got 35 degree heat. So it can be quite challenging if you're going somewhere else. But having a plan for your nutrition strategy and testing it out as as much as you can um, in training so that you, you're confident um, and then yeah, keeping it varied with the texture and flavours. Yeah, and I think there's, there's one of those themes that comes up in almost every podcast, no matter what the topic is, is that preparation and organization and the fact that you know people as you said put so much effort into the preparation organization around training they log all this data they pour over it in training peaks or whatever system you use um and then you you they don't put anywhere near that at level of preparation or thought into the the nutrition side of things and particularly in stage racing and particularly the longer ones that's you know it, it can unravel pretty quickly uh, if you haven't done that preparation yeah definitely. Mm. 
Cool. Um, so just to, to sum things up, are there any sort of key pieces of advice you'd give to listeners who are maybe planning to race a, a multi-day event for the first time? Um, uh, obviously, you've, you've um, sort of summarised a little bit of that just now, uh, or looking to improve their performance in multi-day events. Anything else that you'd want to add to that or, or other things to consider that we haven't sort of talked about? Yeah, I'd maybe think about like like portable solutions. So I don't mean drink solution, like portable food solutions, you know, accepting that you're not going to have a chef or a kitchen truck like we've discussed, but, you know, have you got kind of things like, packet packet food that you can quickly add water to as a as a backup plan you know have you got solutions that don't need to be kept in a fridge um that you can kind of quickly cook you know portable portable like i really like um couscous packets because they they they're dried you don't need to add anything other than other than hot water um tinned meals like um you know tuna and different meals that you can get in the uk that you can just have in your bag so if there is an issue with recovery you've you've got you've got a recovery meal there that's that's ready to go um i think yeah i think it's key just thinking about those potential challenges not waiting for them to happen um like i remember doing an event in france and not not doing this and by the time we got back from the sign on village and it was the night before the only place we could find that was open was in in the alps and it was serving steak and raclette and fries so that was our kind of pre-race meal the night before an event we trained for months <laughs> so you mm. know and yeah that was a few years ago but i think you know go, going back there now i'd make sure that that wasn't my pre-race meal not not just accepting the situation in front of you you know i i would have food that i can rustle up that i'm confident in um yeah they'd be the things i'd be thinking of Mm. And I think that um, another thing I'll probably add to that is uh, thinking about your accommodation, like when you're booking your accommodation, particularly if it's a stage race where you're going to stay in the one place after every stage, uh, making sure that you book accommodation where possible that has kitchen facilities that allows you to actually do a bit of food preparation. Otherwise, you are literally at the mercy of whatever's available, you know, from the, the pub or the shop or the cafe or whatever. Yeah. Um, so you end up with your, you know, your steak and fries or whatever yeah. it is. Um, but if you have sort of some basic kitchen facilities, that just gives you so much more flexibility. And then even like just making sure that there's a supermarket that's going to be open at the time that you need it. And if it's not, bring the food with you so you've got it beforehand. So again, it's that that planning, that organisation. Uh, and a couple other things um, that, that I'd suggest uh, – been talking to a few people that have been sort of traveling for races recently is if you're not sure or you don't have access to those kind of facilities there's some basic things you can take with you a rice cooker is one yeah. um, as long as you've got the right power outlet obviously if you're traveling overseas but that's such, such an easy way to just make sure you can get some basic carbohydrate quickly and easily um, when you might only have you know, a sink and a microwave in in the place you're staying uh, and the other one is like a sandwich press because again you can make all sorts of things with that and uh, it just gives you a lot of options and, and flexibility i don't know steph is there anything else that you'd add like from your trans rockies experience or with other clients that you've worked with they're the main points is yeah making sure the accommodation is is a big one um and taking like the convenient options with you like you said you know um, pre-cooked rice or tuna or just something easy in case you know the supermarket doesn't have what you want um, and yeah normally when I um, do up the plans is yeah make sure that you can purchase this wherever you are going and you know suss out if they're in another country 
what can they access over there and can they try that back here. Um, so they're probably the main things, yeah, finding out if there's a microwave where they are and, um, yeah, um, Trans Rockies, we were really lucky with that um, in terms of um, the catering was, was exceptional. So they actually catered for a variety of, you know, whether someone was vegetarian, celiac, etc. So we're quite spoilt um, with, with being able to soak up that recovery nutrition. We didn't feel like something, there were lots of different um, options there. Um, so, yeah. Um, thank you, you've really covered them. All right, well, we might head to our bonus round now, Steph, so I'll let you take this one away. All right, fun one to get to know about James. Um, so if you could do anything besides what you're doing now, um, what would it be? Mm, I mean, I, I always come back to like craving quite a simple simple more kind of outdoor life i'd quite like the idea of having like a small farm in italy somewhere and maybe maybe a little uh b and b attached to it where i could kind of have some animals and grow some food and have that guest coming through and have a different way of life for, for my family um but yeah <laughs> maybe when yeah. i retire yeah do it in tuscany so you can ride the strada bianchi <laughs> yeah. yeah nice <laughs> And um, do you have a particular sporting background or, yeah, are there particular sports, you know, you, you do yourself? Yeah, so, like, my background was playing football or soccer, as you guys call it, and rugby league um, growing up mm -hmm. um, and, and into my 20s. actually played a little bit of amateur rugby league in Australia when I was backpacking there many, many moons ago. And then it was, yeah, in my, like, late 20s when I was sick of getting kind of bashed, bashed around by guys who are a lot bigger and faster and quicker than me that I moved into into endurance sports. Um, so running and cycling and, yeah, now I just try and squeeze in what I can with, with travel of, of the job and two young kids just to, to keep fit. But, yeah, not not very much a, a proper athlete. Um, just, yeah, just, just trying to train to keep fit at the minute, squeezing the odd run on the road. Yeah. And who who's someone you've um, always wanted to meet and why? Um, yeah, I thought about this one and I think some music's really, really important to me. It's been a big, big part of my life kind of growing up and still is. And like Jim Morrison, the singer from The Doors, was, was a big, big hero of mine. So he, he's somebody who'd be quite, quite interested to meet and find out about his, his story and what actually went on in the in the 60s and when, when he was uh, in his heyday. Oh, yeah, not not necessarily a sporting person, but that's who I'd pick. Yep, yeah. And any piece of advice that you live by? Yeah, um, I was actually chatting about these with uh, James, the chef of the team, last week, and um, a, a common, a two two common like phrases that have stood out to me the past past year or so. So success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. And I think, especially working in sport, I think that that really rings true. You know, if if there's a successful performance or somebody wins, you know, everybody wants to be associated with that. Everybody jumps on the bandwagon and you know wants to be attached to that. But then if things go wrong or if if um, 
you know, it's an unsuccessful performance, then it's kind of no, no, nobody was involved with it. And that's something I always, I always mm-hmm. keep in mind working in, in professional mm-hmm. sport. It can kind of get carried away uh, mm-hmm. when things are going well and really beat yourself up when things aren't going well. But I guess that's, that's sport. Um, and then another phrase that rang true recently was that uh, you can't leave a footprint if you're walking on tiptoes. And I think that mm. that's another phrase I, I quite like as well. Well, <laughs> yeah, mm. yeah, very good. Um, what's one thing you have to take with you when when you're doing the travel? Yeah, so I always take my my running shoes and my running kit. Optimistically, I'll, I always take too much running <laughs> kit. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, when you're, especially on stage races where you're moving hotel every day, the opportunities to get out for a run are, are pretty few and far between. But I'd kick myself if, if I ever have a little window where I could go for half an hour run and I haven't got my kit. So, yeah, I always make sure I've got my, my running kit in my, in my bag. Uh, grand Tours or Spring Classics? Yeah. So from a like, working perspective, the Spring Classics are, are much more enjoyable because the like i said the racing is a lot more intense it's full-on like especially in belgium where cycling's you know it's a religion but then from a staff perspective you then tend to have like a couple of days where they're not racing so you can kind of catch up with riders you can you know get some exercise in yourself um, and then you go again for the next race so it's it's a lot more kind of flowing whereas a grand tour was what kind of interested me in cycling from being a kid and you know i'll always watch the grand tours but when you're actually in the thick of it working there and you you don't know where you are in the middle of france you have no idea unless you look on a map and <laughs> it's yeah it's a lot more a lot more intense but the grand tours are obviously the ones that, that everyone talks about and you want to be involved with and working on so yeah bit of both but <laughs> yeah awesome all right well Thank you so much, James, for your time today. Uh, it's been great to, to get your perspective on what's happening sort of at professional level in terms of stage racing, and then hopefully uh, the listeners will be able to take from that, you know, the things that they can apply for themselves uh, for whatever level of, of racing they're doing and whether it's, you know, running, cycling, uh, mountain biking, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, thanks thanks so much for your time and uh, good luck for, for, for the rest of quarantine. Sounds like it's only another day or two to go. And then... Uh, obviously for the the Tour de France later on in the year. Yeah, cheers guys, thanks for having me. Really good to chat. All right, fantastic to hear from James Moran and some of the stuff that he's doing with Ineos Grenadiers. Obviously a very well-resourced team, very well-organised, very well-disciplined in terms of how they they set up their nutrition program and how they go about it uh, in the context of both one-day and stage races. Um, Steph, do you want to give us a little bit of a, a summary about uh, some of the points that James touched on and, and I guess maybe for the, the people who aren't riding at World Tour level, uh, how that kind of translates for the rest of us? Mm. Um, yeah, so I guess some of the things that James um, touched on and the teams that he, you know, is working with uh, are at that elite level So and they have some good funding behind them. So in terms of nutrition support, you know, they have, I can't remember if he said like three chefs and also three nutritionists there, um, you know, and they've got the facilities there where um, the chefs can um, be creative and, and make what is appealing to each athlete and really individualise that nutrition. 
um, along with the also, you know, have a relationship with um, a sports nutrition company, SIS, um, and, you know, they correspond and give feedback and then they can actually um, further individualise products for, you know, for their athletes as well. So these are things that aren't going to come um, and be available necessarily to a, a, a amateur or recreational athlete. Um, and so that's that's going to be a difference. So the, the recreational athlete, uh, the athlete without those options is going to, I guess, just think of those things a bit more ahead um, and have th some of those things a bit more planned out. Um, but they can still very much, you know, still achieve whatever nutrition targets they have. Um, they just maybe need to rely on, on doing that themselves or in some situations they actually may have their own support crew depending on the event. Um, so, you know, they may have those aspects there. Um, the other thing is just in terms of stage racing, you know, we've already spoken about this just in terms of um, ultra endurance events. Uh, flavor fatigue um, is an issue, but what James actually found with his riders is they actually find it may not necessarily be um, a change in in the taste in terms of sweetness, but um, at, for them it's consistency. Uh, you know, because they're slogging down the the gels and the sports drinks and those types of things um, that sometimes they they want some change in the consistency. Uh, so that was that was actually quite interesting. Um, and then it's about when you're doing a stage race is really thinking about each stage um, and and what's ahead, um, and that you need to not only think about the stage that you're in, but okay, well, hey, next day I've got a, might be an easier stage or it might be you know a, a hard slog day. Uh, and so, you know, your recovery nutrition when you get off the bike at the end of that stage, that is then um, really going to impact on how you perform in the following stage. Uh, so that's where, you know, that immediate recovery uh, is, is really important. And you need to think about all aspects in terms of if my appetite's not great, well, you know, what are my options going to be? Um, and, and, and if my appetite's great, then, you know, then I've got this. So having all options out there. Um, and then the other thing as well is just with stage racing, it, it, you know, again, you'll be in different places depending on the stage. And so for the recreational athletes, um, just thinking about what accommodation, what supermarkets, what's available to you um, to be able to access, um, access food um, as well. Um, and then, you know, with elite athletes, uh, some logistical things that can get in the way for their recovery and nutrition can be um, they may have media commitments, you know, um, they may have just won that stage, so they've got commitments for, for that. So that can actually um, potentially create obstacles for them. Whereas, um, you know, not being at that level, you may thankfully not have those um, particular obstacles in your way. So, you know, 
that may actually be an advantage where you can get on top of your recovery nutrition quite quite quickly. Um, and then a key thing is there's that balance um, of not over-fueling or under-fueling, um, and that can be tricky. Um, and James gave examples, again, of where that can go wrong, you know, and riders may actually put on um, uh, weight um, just because they have over-fueled. Um, so it really is, you know, um, a, a good science and, and monitoring and working with the athlete. And, you know, you can estimate what their needs are with whatever um, uh, data you've got available to you, but you also need to read from that athlete um, what's how, what they're finding for themselves and, um, and tracking that and then adjusting. Um, and stages can vary, like, stages um, may not necessarily be thought that they're going to be as hard but then on the day for whatever reason they can then um, they may become more difficult so you need to have that knowledge on how do you adjust um, your during nutrition intake for that as well um, have I missed some things I'm sure I have Alan um, what other things no, I don't think so. I mean, I think in terms of the, um, you know, adjusting the fueling to get that right, I mean, that's obviously a, mm. a real challenge for, for people, particularly if they don't have all the, the mm. data and the tools available to them or, or you know, struggle to interpret that data uh, or can't get it immediate, that mm. immediate feedback from that kind of data, um, depending on where you are and what you've got available to you. Like if you're out in the bush for a mountain bike race, it's maybe not that easy to download your power meter data or whatever it is uh, and have a look at it. Um, so I think in those cases, and I mean, I think I think back even to our discussions in the previous episode about sort of ultra distance events, like a single stage one, uh, and the fact that you know, each of those athletes we spoke to said that you know you don't get it right on the first time, and there are things that you have to sort of figure out for yourself and learn from experience, and um, you know the numbers will tell you something, but at, at the end of the day, you know, until you get that feedback of, of actually being in that situation um, and, and refining your plan over time, um, you're never going to get it perfect the first time. And, and so I think that's an important message to take away here too for anyone who's attempting their first stage race is that, you know, I don't think anyone will ever would ever expect that you will get it right mm. first go. Um, you know, obviously you can you can take on board various things and, and try and get it as close to that as, as you can. Um, but, you know, until you're in the cut and thrust of that, you're never going to know perfectly if you're sort of chronically under-fueling or over-fueling across multiple days and, until you sort of come out the other end of that, I think, and with mm -hmm. a bit of hindsight. Um, uh, you know, as I said, you can, you can do the best you can, but you'll never know for sure. Um, so so that, that can always be a bit of a challenge. And then I think in terms of those nuts and bolts, I mean, we talked about your know, under versus over-fueling. That's really the, the carbohydrate is mm -hmm. going to make that difference. It's the amount of carbs you're eating. Um, between the stages, whether it's it's enough or, or too much or not enough. Um, whereas the protein, as James said, you know, that stays pretty consistent each day. It's the carbs that go up and down depending on the demands of the day and the demands of, of tomorrow, mm. um, whereas the, the protein stays fairly constant. Yeah. Mm. Awesome. So for, for our next episode, it's, um, it's great. We've got uh, an athlete that we'll be able to provide um, some really nice practical examples of that and logistical challenges that come with that. So um, who do we have? Yeah, so it'll be obviously episode 13B next week. Uh, and our athlete is female pro cyclist Leah Kirchman.
who's a Canadian pro cyclist, rides with um, Team DSM, uh, formerly Team Sunweb, for those of you uh, who might know it under last year's name. Uh, and obviously she's had a, a variety of experience across stage races uh, in the, the women's peloton, you know, from a, a few days to, you know, the, the Giro, which is sort of the, the longest stage race on the female calendar, uh, which is about 10, uh, 10 days for that one. So, um, yeah, she'll be able to give us some fantastic insights into what it's like preparing for those events and I guess the, the logistics and, you know, how that kind of plays out in the real world um, from the athlete perspective. So it'd be great to, to hear her story. Awesome. Um, looking forward to that one. And again, just a reminder for listeners that, yeah, if they've got any questions, please uh, shout out to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can listen to us on all your popular platforms at the Long Munch. And, uh, yeah, until then, we look forward to um, talking to you when we're chatting away to Leah. Yep. Will do. See everyone next week. See you guys.